shall receive these words of Scripture from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, bending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Prior to giving the welcome, I failed to identify myself. I'm David Argo. I'm the acting senior pastor, while the actual senior pastor is away on a renewal leave. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to have you here. My earliest memory of a conversation with my mother occurred when I was about seven years of age. I was about to leave to have my first stay overnight away from home. She had me sit down. She looked me straight in the eye and she said, David, would you be ready if Jesus comes? Now, at that age, I understood that to mean that if I said yes, then I would be taken up with all the true believers with Jesus into heaven. But if I said no, then I would be left behind, alone, and for the next thousand years have to spend my time with the most immoral, wicked, evil people on the face of the earth. And then after that, face the judgment where I would be sentenced to eternal fires of hell. David, would you be ready if Jesus comes? That's a serious question, deserving a serious answer with some extremely serious consequences. And as far as I can remember, whenever she asked me that question, which was always before I was to be away overnight, which she did until I went away to college, <laughs> I would say yes. But I said it with a great deal of uncertainty. I was in my 40s. I had a seminary degree. I'd been a pastor for almost 20 years. When I turned on a radio preacher on my way home from a church meeting, 
His sermon was focusing on the signs in the world that indicated that Jesus was about to return at any time. That's as far as I got. I changed the channel. That night, I could not sleep. I tossed and turned and turned and tossed. I felt the fear I felt as a child. Fear of abandonment, fear of being alone, fear of judgment, fear of spending eternity in the fires of hell. I also felt a surge of anger that I had been subjected to such merciless images of God and Jesus. That night, I knew bone marrow deep that among all of the expressions of child abuse, religious imagery and a punitive understanding of God was among them. And yet, over the next few weeks, that little piece of a sermon just stayed with me. Gradually, I realized that the real question my mother was asking me was not, David, would you be ready if Jesus comes? But David, would you be ready if I were to walk into the room? Would I, your mother, approve of what you're doing, saying, thinking, feeling? That insight was one of the most important conversion experiences in my life. And fortunately, in my early early 40s, I knew that Jesus and my mother had very different responses to specific behaviors. Today's assigned gospel reading became a touchstone for me. It reports that Jesus went around asking people he didn't even know to follow him. Now, what you need to realize is that that was in very sharp contrast to the practices of that day. Normally, an individual would pick out a rabbi or a teacher and go and follow them, and in doing so, become their disciple. Jesus said, follow me. Peter, Andrew, James, and John did just that. Now, it's pretty clear to me he really didn't know them. Because as you know, eventually, Peter denies him three times after he and Andrew and James and all the other disciples had run away when Judas betrayed Jesus. The heart of this story carries a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Again and again throughout the Bible, there are accounts of God's initiative, God taking the first step. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
After the great flood, God said, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky to remind me and all of humanity that I promise never to do this again. Jesus says to Abram, I will be your God, you will be my people. And God sent a child. Jesus takes the initiative. He takes the first step and he says, follow me. Every time we have examples of God taking the initiative, while initially it may be uh, very comforting, it always turns out that it's a little bit disruptive because God is creating something new, a new way of seeing ourselves, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing ourselves in the world. And often, God's initiative comes from the world around us and the relationships that we're in. John Wesley is an example of that. Despite, or perhaps because of his mother, John Wesley felt he had to earn God's acceptance. In college, he and his brother Charles formed a holy club. Now, what they did was to have a very rigid, day-to-day way of doing things. In fact, they were so inflexible that their classmates called them Methodist. Those Methodist. Well, John and Charles had not heard, or perhaps they didn't really believe, in God's initiative. John was, was really hard-headed, so he continued to prove his worth by becoming an Anglican priest. Eventually, his heart was strangely moved, and he came to trust God's assurance that even I am saved from the law of sin and death. However, he was very suspicious of those priests, those preachers, who would hold worship services outside the church building. In fact, he was embarrassed by it. And I am certain there was at least one night that he could not sleep before he finally started having services outside the church. He was surprised by the response. He quickly recognized that there was a need for something other than sermons. And so he formed small groups called class meetings. They would meet once a week, And the key question that was raised is, how is it with your soul? But the evidence is pretty strong that they talked about more than just their soul. They talked about their working conditions and the working conditions that their children were in. And those conversations led to some of the first child labor laws in England. They talked about the fact that they were poor and they they didn't know how to read and write. And that resulted in a Methodist school so that they could learn to read and write. They talked about their families and about uh, the illnesses that they were dealing with. And that led to Methodist clinics across England. 
In fact, John Wesley wrote a track on how to prevent balding. <laughs> it doesn't work. John Wesley took seriously the reminder of, in 1 John that we love God because God first loved us. And we who love God must love our brothers and sisters also. Here at Foundry, that concern for the whole person is evident not only in a variety of social justice ministries, but also in a range of small group study groups, support groups in the life of the congregation. Ginger, the actual senior pastor, has invited us to continue the commitments we have made as a congregation while she's away on leave and to ask ourselves three questions. Who are we as a congregation? Who are our neighbors? And what is God calling us to do? and be. Over the next few months, there'll be a small team who will be looking at the demographic and lifestyle data for the Washington area so that we can take a fresh look at who are our neighbors. When Ginger returns, there will be some house meetings with members of the congregation to talk about who are we. And then later this year, our leaders will be asking the question, what is God calling us to do? Now, that last question is the trickiest. How do we know what God's calling us to do? Well, we depend on God's initiative, and we depend on the working of the Holy Spirit among us. And the Holy Spirit can work in a variety of ways, I would like to suggest just one way this morning. The book of Esther takes place while the Jews were living in captivity in Persia. The story is about the key role that Esther plays in preventing the killing of all of the Jews in Persia. The annual celebration of Purim includes the reading of the entire book of, of Esther. <clears throat> In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, That night the king could not sleep. That verse is the only verse in the entire book of Purim, that at the, in the entire book of Esther, that is repeated more than once in the reading of Esther. It's read multiple times. It's read multiple times because it was when the king could not sleep that the redemption and salvation of the Jews began to unfold. That night, when the king could not sleep, the redemption and the salvation of the Jews began to unfold. So what keeps you awake? What is God calling you to do? What is God calling us to do? What about that night? What about those nights? 
when you cannot sleep.